Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Drummond-Smith. Caroline spent over 35 years suffering with an eating disorder. She controlled her food, obsessed over exercised, and caused irreversible damage to her body. Her eating disorder became her identity. During this time, Caroline managed to raise a family and despite them being affected by her eating disorder, her relationship with her children and marriage not only survived but subsequently thrived. Today, Caroline is fully recovered and works as an eating disorder coach using her deep understanding and experience in a positive way to help others. Caroline, welcome to Love This Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Okay. And uh, 35 years is a long time. I can very much relate to that. Let's let's dive in. Your relationship now with food, or how would you describe your relationship with food? Would you describe it as a friend or a foe? Definitely a friend. Definitely. And what does that look like? How does it feel? How does it, it just to me appear in your imagination? Yeah, to me, it's just freedom. It's that that lack of worry, control, just free with food. It's great. So let's go back to when it wasn't and when it all started. Mm. When did you start having a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult relationship with the self, isn't it? And then it becomes manifested in our relationship with food. But when, when did it start with the food? Well, do you know, it's funny because I always said for years, I've been saying it started when I was sent to boarding school in England at the age of 16. Mm. But actually, I was talking to my very old school friend. We were at school together from the age of 10. I was talking to her the other week and she said, oh, yeah, when we were at school at sort of the age of 15, she said teachers used to come up to me and say, oh, Caroline's not eating. We're really worried. So there was something going on before I was sent to boarding school in England. So I would say it was when I was about 15 that you weren't started. Okay. So you weren't aware that you weren't eating? Not really, but if I think back, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I think the older you get, the more you forget things. <laughs> um, I do remember yeah. having breakfast when I was at home, when I was about 15, at day school, having breakfast, my mother being up in her bedroom, had gone back upstairs to, I don't know, do whatever she was doing, and throwing half my breakfast away. So there was definitely something something going on there. But I wouldn't say it was a full-blown eating disorder then by any means. Okay. When your mum went upstairs, Mm. were you throwing the food away because you were angry because in some way you'd felt rejected and so therefore you were rejecting her because she gave you the food? No, but that's an interesting take on it. Um, No, but I could blame her now. It's one take, isn't it? (laughs) No, I think... (laughs) There was obviously something um, about me wanting to restrict my food. It was purely about how can I restrict food and actually perfect opportunity. I was on my own in the kitchen so I could throw half of it away. I think it was as simple as that. And but do, you, do you now in hindsight, do you know what the feelings were? There was stuff with my mum. Our relationship was difficult. So my sister had gone off to boarding school. My dad was commuting back to the UK. We were living in Paris. So looking back, yeah, there was a probably a lot of insecurity, 
feeling a bit unstable, uh, not quite sure. I knew at that point that my parents wanted me to go to school in England the following year, which I really was resisting. So I'm sure, I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on in my head and classic thing, I started controlling my food. Did your mum control her food and did she restrict her love and affection? She, she was uh, very common in that time, I think. Um, I remember her being on various diets. So yes, in a way she was controlling her food. Uh, my father never controlled his food, but he used to make comments about my mother's eating. So there was a lot of tension ah. around food, I suppose. Um, did my mother restrict, did you say restrict her love, control her love to me? There was... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, in a way. Um, she found it hard having teenagers. She was great when we were younger, but because of her upbringing and issues in her childhood, when we hit teenage years, she then struggled with the relationship. So there was definitely a lot from that point of view. But also my father, he had his eating issues as well. He's pretty short. In what way? I, well, because he's short, mm. I think he never wanted to be fat. Um, and I mm. truly believe, actually, that eating disorders are genetic. There's a genetic component to them. His mother, I think, mm. had issues. And, of course, it didn't come out so mm. much because she was, you know, she was brought up during the war two wars. Um, but there were definitely signs of her being very conscious of her size and her shape, even in her into her 80s and 90s. And my father definitely. Really? Yeah, my father definitely as well has had issues with food. He would deny it strongly, but so definitely. You, mm, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So did you sit around the table as, as, a, as a family? Was it just you and your parents? Or you had, oh no, so you had siblings. Did you I've sit around and sister. have meals together? We did. An older yep. sister, okay. Yeah, two years older. Um, and I think that was an element too. Um, she is pretty dominating. Is that the word? Pretty vocal, um, forceful. Yeah. yeah. I was the shy one, the introvert. She's the extrovert. And looking back, it was a way of me being heard because sitting around the meal table, she was the one who was always being heard because she had a louder voice than me. And so I think, yeah, I mean, it was a great way, wasn't it, of getting the attention by restricting Oh, it's terrific age. for that. Yeah. So I think there were so many elements that played into it. I don't think there's ever one reason that an eating disorder happens, but but there were a lot of those factors playing into it. So you go to school, you go to boarding school, which I'm, mm. did you want to go? No, absolutely not. No, I've, okay. I've lived, so you continued I've never what lived you started in, at yeah, home. I hadn't, hadn't lived in England since the age of four. So England to me wasn't home. Okay. So it was completely alien and new to me. So yeah, I didn't want to go to Did me. you speak English and French at home in Paris? Yes. Yeah, we spoke both. So were you fully fluent and able to fit in as much as you can yeah, at 16? Yeah, the language wasn't school? a problem in England. Okay. Um, but the the culture was a big problem. Mm. So Just, how long did you stay at boarding school for? Just I did 18? one year. 
No, I only did one year because I hated it so much. And my parents, my father sent me to some psychiatrist in that first year because he realized that I was miserable. A complete nutter. I mean, I, I don't know what he did or said, but I mean, he was just a, a bit, um, didn't really have a clue about anything. But the one thing he did say, he said to my father, you need to send her back to the school in Paris for her final year. So I loved him for that. Whatever else he said to me, I can't remember. But anyway, so I was, right. they let me go back to Paris where I still boarded because my parents had moved to England by that point. So it wasn't the boarding that was the issue. Okay. So I then boarded at my old school and was really happy. But the eating disorder behaviours had set in then. So they were ingrained in me by that stage. Did you continue them when you were back at school in Paris? Um, I did, but not to the same extent. So I would say I was, I could cover them up because I was so much happier. They were there, but they weren't the main focus. People didn't really notice because I suppose I was at that weight, which is what people look at, isn't it? Um, or always definitely used to. Yeah. Um, I looked healthy enough. I was, I was probably at the very low end of healthy. Um, so people weren't really questioning it. I think probably my parents said to the the boarding school bit of it, they probably warned them of what was going on. So I suspect I was being watched. Um, but I was okay. I was well enough. But the thought process was still there. The behaviours were still there, definitely. Okay. So you leave school. Mm-hmm. I want to just do a kind of chronology of your... <laughs> Maybe not 35 years in the first <laughs> bit in a couple of minutes, but <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, just so when did it, when did it all start up again for you? So you said that the seeds have been set, the behaviors have been set. Yeah. Was it the next, tra- was it the next traumatic event or happening or whatever, you know, unsettled you? Exactly. And that was the pattern, really. Every time something right. that I felt unstable about, unsure about, happened. I lost a lot of weight, relapsed badly. So the next thing was I went, I took a gap year, which was okay, went to university, through university, had a boyfriend, split up with him and had a bad relapse. So that was the next time it happened badly. Mm. Um, And that was the pattern really throughout those 35 years. And could it be, I mean, breaking up with a boyfriend is traumatic or a partner is traumatic could it be little things that would tip you did it get so because you said it became your identity yeah could it be just you woke up in the morning just feeling a bit off um yes I think there were some days where I'd wake up and think I just feel a bit out of control here for me it was that big control thing and yeah I had obsessive behaviors eating disorder behaviors so if something was a bit off you know like I don't want to trigger or, you know, I'm not going to mention numbers or anything, but, you know, if I got on the scales, didn't like what I saw, that would trigger some eating disorder, more severe behaviour, more extreme behaviour. How did it spill out into the rest of your life? So you're controlling your food mm-hmm. and therefore you're controlling your body yep. to a greater or lesser extent. How did it manifest in other areas? So That restriction, I mean, that, that, kind, yeah. that tight control. So social life was uh, badly affected looking back. I just, it makes me sad to think, what a waste. All those years I wasted yeah. having a yeah, great social too. life. You know, mm. 
And the thing, I suppose the difficulty was that I am an introvert. I, I am antisocial, as anybody who knows me would tell you. I like my own company. So <laughs> my natural way of being would be to veer on the antisocial side, but I took it to the extreme which is sad, I, you know, especially as a sort of early 20s, that should be the time when you're really living life to the full, socially wise, and I didn't. But then, yeah, on the other hand, for the social side, it was actually just, it was very reassuring that I, I was in control of, of, of what I did, where I went, who I saw. So it was very comforting to me. Did you have a fantasy when you weren't going out that just another night in or whatever, you would, you'd emerge like the phoenix and, and you'd be out there and, and having a great time if you just had a bit more time, a bit more control. Did it, did it happen like that? No, I didn't even want to. I didn't, I didn't feel I was missing out. It's only looking back, I see all those missed opportunities and that makes me sad. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Caroline Drummond-Smith. And Caroline has just got to, where did we get to? We got to the social life, how you were happy not to go out mm-hmm. because you describe yourself as an introvert and it didn't bother you. And I was picking, asking, did you have a, were you waiting for that moment when you re-entered the social scene, but you were like, on the contrary, I was happy to stay away. Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. So that, and that is sad. That's what you said. It is Mm. sad. I I can relate to that, except I always had the fantasy that just one more, one more day or hour, and then I would reemerge. Okay. So, (laughs) so, but you're married and you have two kids, so you must've emerged at some point. I did. I actually have three children. Um, So I got married. Oh, you have three. I have three. That's okay. Um, so I got married pretty young. I was 23, which the older I get, the younger that seems. Um, and seems quite horrifying to have been married at 23. But it worked. And it's, you know, I've been married for 32 years now. Um, but the interesting thing was... Can I, can I yeah. just ask you something? Mm-hmm. I want to know how you were able to get yourself out there to get married if you was... How did that happen? So how did you manage that psychologically? I met... Well, physically, I met, met my husband to be in my flat. My flatmate was having a party, and I hated parties. So I, but I had to be there. I didn't have much choice. So I ensconced myself in my kitchen, and this guy appeared in the kitchen, and we spent the whole evening chatting. And it went from there. Uh, funnily enough, we didn't actually go out, start going out for another year and a half. Um, but then once we did start going out, it just, I knew it was right. And it was just one of those things, you know, when you know, you know. And he's seven years older than me. So hopefully he's a little bit more mature than I was. But the point there is that it suited us both. He's a workaholic. I was an anorexic. And it was just ideal because he would be at work all day and half the night, which allowed me to engage in my anorexic behaviours, as in not eating and not having anybody question it. So it was a perfect match, really. So he didn't know? I'd like to say he did because he must have seen it, but I I don't think he did. Um, and I don't want to 
put down any men who are listening. Um, but I think it was, I don't know, it was a combination. I was probably very good at hiding it by then. So that plus him being so focused on his work, I managed to hide it. He conveniently didn't see it. Is food actually not that big a deal for him as well? Oh, it is. No, funnily enough, it is. But I suppose, ah. I suppose, I mean, he had a pretty odd upbringing. He had two brothers, was sent to boarding school at the age of seven. Um, we could do a whole podcast about this. And uh, oh yeah, boys boarding school right the way through to 18. So pretty weird. Mm. Um, so didn't really have any... Didn't mm-hmm. have a clue, basically, and he wouldn't mind me saying that. He'd agree. So, yeah, I could easily hide it from him. But, yes, he loved food, apart from the fact when I first met him, he just used to eat cornflakes and peanuts. But that was just, I think, through sheer laziness. Um, of, yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. And also, I come from a family where all the men – actually, I'm the only person for generations who didn't go to boarding school, so I'm, I completely mm. get it. Yeah. My stepfather just used to eat sardines and rivita. <laughs> cornflakes S- and peanuts slightly healthier than cornflakes and peanuts <laughs> okay so okay so you're hiding it you're obviously functioning mm-hmm. and you're married and and we know that you're the way you restricted food for you was about being feeling out of control and therefore in control did mm-hmm. marriage feel safer and did you feel more secure or was it still emotionally challenging no I felt a lot more secure when I was married I did it was I think if you'd asked me as a child or apparently if you say to my parents what if they said what do you want to be when you're grown up I said a mummy which is you know very non-pc nowadays because mm-hmm. I should have said I want to be a businesswoman running my own company but I didn't I always I just imagined I would get married and have children and that's what I wanted and so I was really happy to be married it just, I think also socially, it meant that I didn't have to, there was no expectation so much to get out there because I'd found my life partner. So it did make things right. easier. Yeah, of course, of course. What a relief. Mm. What a relief. So you have three children. Mm-hmm. Were you in it? Was you, were you physically unable to have? Was it difficult to have children or were you young enough? Was your body young enough to handle the restriction of food and lack of Uh, nutrition? No, I had to go on fertility treatment. Um, So I got pregnant for the first time after, I mean, looking back, I was actually very lucky. It was just minor fertility drugs, uh, which helped me to get pregnant. But it was because I'd messed my body up that I I wasn't, my body wasn't functioning properly. Um, But very fortunate to get pregnant, had one child, had my son, who's now 29, I then got pregnant, I suppose, a year later and had twins. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I had three children under 20 months, which was pretty hard work, (laughs) Um, but pretty amazing. Yeah. How did you, how did you cope with your changing body when you were pregnant? The the, the look of it? Do you know, it's, yeah, it's funny. I was fine because there was a reason for it. It wasn't because I was eating too much food. You know, there was a baby and then two babies growing in there. So I was meant to grow. But also I was, I think because of my eating disorder, I was very small. Even when I was eight months pregnant or just under eight months, the twins were born at 35 weeks. 
I was tiny, really looking back on it. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that yeah. was because, because I was in hospital 10 weeks before they were born. So I say I was fine with it growing, but I remember the doctor coming in and saying, we hear you're not eating enough. You need to eat more for your babies. But I remember, although it was absolutely right. miserable being in hospital for 10 weeks, especially because I had a an 18-month-old who I had to sort of get care for, um, I do remember there was a part of me that thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity not to eat because hospital food, as everyone knows, is not the greatest. So it was just great. There was no temptation. I just hardly ate. But isn't it amazing what the body can do it? Everything went to the babies and they were healthy when they were born, but it was my body that suffered as a result. How did your body suffer? I was uh, I was very, well, I was underweight after I'd given birth. I was exhausted, but I was still determined to breastfeed. And everyone was saying, you can't, you've got three toddlers, you know, two babies and a toddler, you can't breastfeed. But I did it for four or five months. Um because I think classic, again, eating disorder personality, I thought I've got to be the best at everything I do. You know, I had to be the best anorexic. I had to be the best mother. Um, so breastfeeding, obviously, breastfeeding twins was exhausting. But I just, I just pushed myself. I really pushed myself too hard looking back on it. Um, so yeah, my body did suffer. And long term, my body... Through the years, my body, I've wrecked my bones. Um, I've got osteopenia and osteoporosis. And that's because of the eating disorder. Right. And there's, mm. sadly, there's nothing. I mean, I can stop it getting worse, which I'm taking all the steps I need to to stop it getting mm. worse, but I can't reverse it. And that's something I have to live with. Mm. Did you, you said you always wanted to be a mum. So you have all this, this, uh, I want to call it. Well, you have this disordered relationship with food and your body going on. Mm. Were you also loving being a mum? Do you remember being happy and fulfilled and content? Yes, I was. I mean, I think as any young mother knows, there were days when I thought, really? Because um, I went to university, obviously, and thought, did I really do a degree? To I remember one morning, it was about eight o'clock in the morning, and I think I'd already changed about nine nappies between the three of them. And I thought, is this really what my life has wow. been reduced to? <laughs> but, you know, that that period of time went <laughs> pretty quickly. And yes, I loved being a mother. There were the usual frustrations, boredom. Um, but yeah, I, I was very fortunate that I could stay at home to be with them, which is what I wanted to do and I chose to do. And so I did, lo I loved it. I it was, it was what I wanted to do, yeah. Okay, so when your children are a little bit older, let's go to... Um, let's go to when you're, I don't know, early thirties. Mm -hmm. How was, how was the food then as they became more independent, maybe a little bit less needy of you? I'm thinking of all this kind of classic reasons that might have produced a kind of feelings of, I don't know, maybe feelings of being out of control in, in you. Did, did it flare up as they got older? Um, it flared up, but for various other reasons, like I had a skiing accident, and I had to have surgery on my knee. I couldn't exercise for nine months. So that triggered a bad relapse. But as far as the children went, it was it was interesting. As they went came into their teenage years, so I'd say sort of 12, 11, 12, I remember my husband saying to me, if you keep controlling their food, 
the way you are, you will ruin your relationship with them. And that was quite hard to hear. Mm. But he was so right. Mm. He was so right because and what did- when... When your children are little, you can control their food. You do, because that's your job as a mother. You feed them what you choose to feed them. And I fed them very well. You know, I was was Mm. lucky in that I could – I think some people with eating disorders find it very hard to feed other people, but I could. You know, I could make sure my children were being properly fed, even though I wasn't feeding myself properly. But as they became – got to the stage where they were making their own choices – that was where I found it so difficult watching them choose foods that I didn't think they should, in inverted commas, have. And that's where it got very difficult. And I think so that's where that I like? then, Would you, I can imagine. Yeah. So I would, I think I would then control my food even more, if that makes sense. So because, mm. because I felt their food was out of control, which it wasn't at all, they were just making normal teenage decisions which teenagers make with food I felt I had to control I felt so out of control that I then controlled my food even more to make myself feel more in control and safer and what did 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 they ever offer any insights or comments about your relationship with food as they when they were younger when they were teenagers I think because they'd never known any different with me I mean there were comments things like when when we went out for meals and I would order my salad and I remember one day one of my sons said before I even said to the waiter my son got in there first and said and she wants the dressing on the side so (laughs) you know they just you know they knew they knew my weird habits and we never talked about it until until they were about 11 and 12 and I went in for treatment for an 18-month stint. It was I went in every day. I came back at night. But they had to know because there were certain childcare issues of picking up from school and things. So I had to explain to them what was going on. But that was the first time that I'd ever been open about my eating disorder with them. But I had it was after my knee surgery. I'd had a big relapse. So there was no hiding from it. So I talked to them then, and they just you know, as children do, they accepted it in their own way. Obviously, it had an effect. But as they got into their teenage years, particularly, so I've got two sons and one daughter, my daughter particularly, it really did affect, it really affected her. Mm. Before we take a quick break, Caroline, what got you into treatment? I hear that you had an accident, you couldn't exercise. I know Mm -hmm. that you, I mentioned in your introduction that you exercised obsessively. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't really, really need to look at that. It's all in the same melting pot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What, what got you into treatment? Well, that 18-month treatment I got into was really through sheer force of my husband. He said, you either go there, because it was a place locally, or he said, you have to go into hospital. And I said, well, I'm not going into hospital. I'll, I'll literally escape. I'll climb out of the window, which I would have done. I, I just refused. So I thought, well, it's the yeah. lesser of two evils. But that didn't actually, we can talk about later, but that didn't actually result in my full recovery. It was only later on. Okay. Okay. We are going to take a quick break there. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Caroline. We ended on a cliffhanger, like any good soap opera episode. (laughs) 
Caroline went into treatment <laughs> and for 15 months, 16 months. And uh, then, but yeah. you did say to me, I don't know if you said it when we were recording or in the break, that that wasn't, that wasn't the, your husband said you have to go, but I don't know if that was the moment when everything shifted. No, so it wasn't. It was, I got a lot better um, on the outside. I gained the weight. So, you know, to the outside world, I was a lot better. But my behaviours and my thinking was still very eating disorder entrenched. Um, and it was only, f- we then moved to Madrid for five years. And I just lived lived my sort of, I suppose you'd call it now quasi-recovery. I didn't know that word existed then. Uh, came back to England and had another relapse. And it was at that point, it was literally just one morning. So it was a bad relapse. Everyone was really worried about me. I said, I'm fine. Just basically go away. Um, And I woke up one morning and I was drying my hair and I looked down at my legs and I thought, oh my goodness. It was like this sort of, this veil had been lifted from my eyes. You know anything? I can actually see them as other people see them. I thought, this is really not good. And I looked in the mirror and it was like I was talking to myself. It sounds really weird. But anyway, I said, I'm done with this. I am sick and tired of this. I, I've had enough and I'm just going to get better. And that was the turning point. And like we said in the break, it didn't happen instantly. And I didn't actually have any therapy after that. And I wish I had. I wish I'd had somebody just to talk to once a week just to support me. But I, I suppose because I'd been in various treatments, I knew what I needed to do. I actually knew exactly what I needed to do. I just needed to do it. And so I did. And that was the start of my full recovery. But was the was the, the doing what you needed, what you knew you needed to do, was that clearly that was enough to heal your relationship with yourself and heal heal your your take on who you were and in your, you know, your narrative, your story and how, how you were in the world and, and how you saw yourself? It, it was, but it was, you know, it was hard work because the eating disorder was my identity. And I remember thinking, well, who on earth yeah. am I without that eating disorder? 35 years I've had this. This is who I am. I'm Caroline, the one who's got such self-control. Who, I'm the runner. I was a bit like Forrest Gump. You know, I used to be known when we lived in Sussex as the one who was, I was always spotted one place or another because I was running all the time. Who would I be without right. that? So it was re, re sort of, what's the word? Remaking myself, um, recreating myself. It was, yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, the food bit of it was difficult. The One of the hardest bits was the body image because I think for 35 mm. years, I'd been so underweight. That, that was all I knew. That was my body. I'd never known my healthy mm. adult body. I didn't know what it was meant to be. So I was terrified of what it was becoming. So that was really, really difficult to accept my new body. Um, but just gradually, I just, you know, that that cognitive work of just, yeah, there is so much more to life than obsessing about food, obsessing about your shape and body. And suddenly your life, your world opens up. And whereas when you're stuck in an eating disorder, you think, well, there's nothing more to me. Well, of course there isn't because you're so focused on that eating disorder. That is your life. When that eating disorder gets smaller and smaller and smaller and disappears, suddenly the whole world opens up to you and all these opportunities open up. So that's what happened. I want to ask you two things. 
how you how you and your husband managed for that long in mm-hmm. with you in your eating disordered state which is really something mm-hmm. and i want to talk ask you about how it was to to parent your your children as they got older but also about how it was for them can you do the husband bit first i'll do the husband bit first that's a bit quicker in a or way your relationship is, <laughs> yeah um yeah so yeah. one first of all i've got to hand it to him he has been so patient i mean unbelievable mm. just a, a little aside he's not a saint just in case anyone thinks he's a saint <laughs> but he is <laughs> he is amazing you know to live with someone with an eating disorder must be a nightmare and to live with someone for so long with an eating yeah. disorder and watch me do that to my children as well must have been so hard for him but he our relationship has got better and better and better and it was good to start with but it's got better and what happened was that he was a workaholic I was an anorexic perfect he then and he wouldn't mind me saying this I know he had a breakdown because he was working so hard he then went into therapy himself which opened so many floodgates because of his upbringing and he Mm. suddenly realized that there was more to life than work and we actually started talking properly for the first time in our marriage and I mean properly properly about how we were feeling our emotions and so I think that helped so much that he understood me I understood him so we just connected on another level there and that really helped oh that's lovely I'm just thinking about um breaking the shackles from the past breaking his um like generational DNA, you know, the boarding mm. school thing. And yeah. both of you starting to open up and, and can't quite find the words, just stopping, stopping that, the repetition mm. of that pattern. And clearly you stopped it with your kids. So how, yeah, how were your kids affected? How are they? So what would you like to say about that? Because I, I want people listening, if they are in a similar situation that you were in and they're in it, or they've, they've hopefully moved on, but how can you... um illuminate that for us so I think the most important thing is communication so once the children knew about my eating disorder I mean obviously I didn't burden them with the ins and outs of it that's not a mother's role you know with their children but to be open and we've always as a family been very open in our emotions and we've really worked on that and my daughter I was talking to her earlier and I said to her that I was coming on this podcast and I said you know, what What was the effect of my eating disorder on you? And we've talked about it before. You know, I've, we've had a lot of conversations about it and I feel a lot of guilt and shame. And I've told that to particularly my daughter. And she said, you know, you don't need to. Life happens, which is a very adult thing to say. She said, I mean, she used a few mm. different words, which I won't say on the podcast, but, you know, she said, it, it's fine. <laughs> she said, I understand, you know, that, things happen in life and she said I'm just so proud of you that you've come out of it the other side and you're recovered so that's really nice what she did say was that as a teenager she found it really difficult because like a lot of teenage girls you know they talk about weight and diets and so part of her wanted to go on a diet with all her friends because she wanted to be really thin but she also she could see what doing that could lead to because she had me to look at So she was sort of torn in that way. 
But then she said in mm. a way it helped her because she feels she's got a much better relationship with food than she would have had had she not been able to talk to me about it, see my suffering and see how much damage a bad relationship with food, what it can lead to. So she actually has got such a great relationship with food. Now she's she's late 20s now. So I'm not suggesting mothers go and get an eating disorder so their daughters have a great relationship with food. But for me, we were so lucky that it turned out all right. And my boys, I I'm think, just, yeah, the, the two mm -hmm. boys, I mean, yeah, one of my sons, I think, could have had an eating disorder. He had that, he has that temperament, but luckily it hasn't turned into that, but he's a perfectionist and very, um, likes control, but luckily he's channeled that in a different way. So there are no issues, no concerns at all with that. Um, and I still talked, I, you know, I carried on talking to them. I insisted on talking to them. They didn't always want to hear because I think teenage boys just don't want to hear that sort of thing. They're not interested. Um, but I, I still, I carried on. I was open with them about it. And I think that's really helped for all of them. And they understand now eating disorders, which can only be a good thing, can't it, going forward? How do you deal with the issues around control in your family? Because you said your sons channeled it, but that's that's the theme, isn't it, mm. for, for you guys? It is, and we are very sort of open about it. And I have to be very careful not to – I mean, I am very conscious that I like control. So I am very aware of how and where I use that, and I try and make it a positive rather than a negative – and with the children, I mean, obviously, because they're their late 20s now, they're their own people. There's only a certain amount as parents we can now do. Um, we've done the damage. It's up to them now yeah. to put it right. Go to therapy <laughs> themselves. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, I mean, that son who's very controlling, he's doing an amazing cycle ride now from Argentina up to Alaska. And that for him, that's his control. He has to do it. Mm. If he stopped halfway, that will be a failure for him. So we say that wouldn't be a failure. Wow. If wow. you decided to stop, that would be because you've decided to stop. So we try and, yeah. I don't know if that's a good example, but, you know, we try and just keep talking. And I suppose that's what comes out of this is just talk, talk be open, be, be honest with each other and, and just be there. I think it is a good example because you're offering a different story, another mm. option, another choice. Yeah. And that, and you're clearly saying it's within your remit, isn't it? If he exactly. wants to stop or not, not to talk about him and use him, but you're saying, <laughs> yeah, yes, totally. there are options. There's this mm -hmm. and this and this. Exactly. So, okay, they're not here, so I'm not going to ask more about them. I'm. Did you have family therapy? Oh, once. But uh, that was with my parents, funnily enough. That was no, we did have children. It was because they were, well, they were young children. I was at, um, probably won't mention where I went, but anyway, I was having therapy, the weekly therapy with this woman. And she said, I think it would be useful if your parents and your husband came along. Disaster, absolute disaster. So that was a one-off. Was it? Didn't happen again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't need to know about that, but I'm not uh, <laughs> Amazing that you have changed your story and written such a beautiful ending um or the, obviously not an ending because it's continuing <laughs> not quite and in your work can you no i don't mean it. it's all done now it's friday you're finished 
talk to me about your work and how you use your experience with with other people. We've just got a little bit of time left. Yeah. So I now work as an eating disorder coach, and I think my mm. what do you call it USP? Um, yeah, is that I have experienced an eating disorder for a long time, and I get it, and. That's what people who I work with say. They've been, some people, I'm the first person they've worked with, quite a lot of people, they've tried various different types of therapy. And they come to me and they say, finally, somebody who understands, who understands that eating half a biscuit is a massive achievement, who understands that mm. that not having to weigh themselves is, or not, you know, managing not to weigh themselves is massive, who understands that this has become their identity and they're terrified of letting it go because they don't know what will happen. And, you know, obviously I'm not the right fit for everybody. It has to be that connection with that person. It's a personality thing. But I think for me to be able to use my experience to help other people, I hate that phrase of, oh, it made it all worth it because I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy and I wish it hadn't happened to me. But at least there's good that's come out of it that I can now help other people. Could I just challenge you? Mm-hmm. Do you think it happened to you or do you think you chose it, albeit conscious or not, of your choice? I think, I think it happened to me to start with because I can't even remember the moment it started. But I think then I chose mm-hmm. it. I, you know, nobody's ever asked me this before, so I'm thinking on my feet here. I think I chose yeah, sure. it. Yeah, sure. I just I how you feel. S- subsequently, I chose it because it was my go-to. It was my safe go-to. And it's mm. what I wanted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... How can people reach you through your Instagram? We're going to have all your details, as we always do on the show notes. They can reach you through your Instagram page. Do you have a website? I do. So my Instagram is Zest Health Coaching. My website is zesthealthcoaching.co.uk. Yeah, and on there are all my contact details. Okay. Okay. I had something really pertinent that I wanted to ask you then. It was around (laughs) parenting. I'm sure it was. Yeah, I'm just just thinking about you and your hubby and Mm -hmm. the... And you said we, you know, we started talking for the first time. Mm. That's just so important, isn't it? To be able to talk to your partner and your significant others. It's essential. It really is. And I think I'm not saying our marriage wouldn't have survived if we hadn't. But it certainly wouldn't be as good as it is if we hadn't. And it's difficult to communicate. Sometimes it's much easier just to clam up and not say anything because it it takes an effort, doesn't it? You think, oh, I can't be bothered and it's too much effort. But actually when you do, you think, I'm so glad I did because it makes you even closer, definitely. It takes practice. Mm. I see it like um, art or being creative. It's a creative practice. Yeah. You know that um, famous book by Eric, Eric Fromm, which I've now forgotten the name of it, Standing in Love, is it? Do you know, I no, know that he, he talks about the difference between falling in love and like you're not actually falling in love, you stand in love because mm. the act of falling in love is the initial romantic encounter. And I'm just, I think I've got the title wrong, but it's Eric from. Yeah, and, and it makes it sense. Is, it's a continual yeah. practice. And it may, you have to yeah. make a conscious decision every day. It's like recovery. You're deciding every day when you're recovering. Yeah. It's not, yeah. you're not waiting until you're motivated. And that's when you can't. Mm. it's you're deciding every day yeah that's when you can choose yeah yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you become more resilient and more upright, you can continually choose, choose, choose. Exactly. Not always comfortable, but. So, of course, I brilliantly cut you off when you're talking about your work. But I think, we, I think we're clear on, on your work. Is there anything, before I ask you the final question, which I always ask, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd particularly like to highlight or that you think is valuable or anything you'd like to talk about, Caroline? No, I think the only message I try and give is that I see people of my sort of age, older, maybe a bit younger, who say, but it's too late. I've had this for too long. It's never too late and you've never had it for too long. And I think I am proof of that, that yes, it can be so entrenched, but if you really want it and you have to want it, it can't just be, oh, my husband or my parents or my children want me to get better. That doesn't do it. If you truly, you don't have to 100% want it because of course the eating disorder is going to say, no, 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 no you need to hold on to me. But if there is a part of you that truly wants to recover, then you can do it. So never doubt that. I love that. That's great. Okay. If you were whisked off to an island, any kind of island, mm-hmm. any climate, you have a store cupboard, yep. seasoning, etc. olive oil, I say the same thing every time. <laughs> what five foods would you take with you? Okay. Um, I only thought about this because I've listened to some of obviously your other podcasts and I thought she's going to ask me that and I suddenly realised I hadn't thought about it. So Thanks for that. Thanks for chop. listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of your many followers. Uh, chocolate, dark oh. chocolate. Every day I have dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. So I would need to take chocolate. Mm-hmm. Assuming there was a freezer. Yeah. Is there a freezer? Can I have a freezer? Because I want yeah, ice cream. Yeah, your island, take what you want. Yeah, ice cream. Okay. Uh what flavour ice cream? Ooh, chocolate chip. But it has to be proper chocolate chunks okay. in it, not just sort of, you know, pathetic mm-hmm. little bits. Proper Pretend. chunks. Yeah. Yeah. Prawns. <laughs> Love prawns. Mm. Um, bread. And it would be baguette. It would be proper, delicious, proper baguette. And they would go with the prawns. Nothing better. And actually they would Lovely. be good with the chocolate as well. Because that was my childhood... Yes. After school snack. Uh, so that's four. Now a fifth. Okay, I'm going to go for lobster. Love lobster. Wow. Wow. Very exotic. Yes. I, I always say I won't comment on people's lists and I end up making little <laughs> comments. So I'm going to take myself away now. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me, Gemma. It's been great. Really great. It's been a joy. It's taken us ages to get together. I'm so glad that we finally did. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Love This Food Thing. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Instagram at Love This Food Thing, or you can head to our website, lovethisfoodthing.com. Join our community. Everyone's welcome. Catch you in the next episode. <laughs>